It's about predatory lending, which is thriving in Massachusetts and beyond. Northampton Mayor Gina Luisera announced she has selected benefit specialist Chad Dunham as the city's next director of human resources. Mayor Shera said Chad exemplifies our strong succession planning, benefiting from years of mentoring and extensive training. She added that she's thrilled that Dunham, pending city council confirmation, will lead the human resources department for Northampton. Dunham has a master's in business administration and currently lives in East Hampton. Mostly sunny today, low humidity, a high of 72 to 76. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures dropping through the 60s and chilly, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. A few scattered showers from the western fringes of Hurricane Lee on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. On the front page of today's Republican, MassLive.com, Dateline Springfield by Stephanie Barry, civil liberties lawyers made their case yesterday that the Hamden District Attorney is not playing fair with defendants whose prosecutions may be marred by past Springfield police misconduct. Plaintiff's attorneys are fighting now before the Supreme Judicial Court for a wide and independent state review of cases touched by tainted former narcotics unit officers, a step that could potentially lead to mass dismissals of cases. The plaintiff's lawsuit is asking the high court to help force a global mandate mirroring the one the court issued related to the -the on-the-job drug use by former state drug lab employee Sonia Farak. And the article goes on from there. With us today, we have Rebecca Jacobstein. Rebecca Jacobstein is the leading appellate attorney for the Committee for Public Counsel Services, which is one of the petitioners in that case, argued before the Supreme Judicial Court yesterday. Attorney Jacobstein, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and your advocacy. By way of uh, disclosure, I have been one of the members of the litigation team for the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts, which is one of the attorneys on the case, co-counsel with attorney Rebecca Jacobstein from the Committee for Public Counsel Services. Thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your taking the time. Tell our listeners what this case is about. So this case is really about two things. It's about figuring out the scope of the misconduct at the Springfield Police Department in light of the Department of Justice's report that there is a pattern and practice of misconduct um, of excessive force and of covering up that excessive force through false reports. And then the second part of the litigation is to um, force the district attorneys to provide us with that evidence that they find uh, of falsified reports or excessive force. Now, you say us. Us is the Committee for Public Counsel Services, the public defender agency for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The name of the case is Graham versus the District Attorney's Office. Tell us more, if you would, please. What is it that you're looking or we are looking for the court to do? Well, when I said us, I really meant defense attorneys. Um, So all defense counsel are entitled to exculpatory evidence. Um, But what happened is, is we found out, we've known for years, really, that the Springfield Police Department is is beating people up and lying about it. Um, but once the DOJ report came out, the Department of Justice wrote a, did an investigation and found that there was reasonable cause to believe that the uh, Springfield Police Department uh, 
was using excessive force and was was filing false reports. But we don't know who. So we're trying to find out who that is. And we don't know how long and we don't know which cases. So that's what we would really like an investigation to look at. One of the analogies that Matt Siegel, who is now with the National ACLU and was the legal director of the ACLU of Massachusetts for many years, who argued the case yesterday for before the Supreme Judicial Court, he used the analogy of an iceberg. And he said, what we have from the DOJ report is the tip of the iceberg. And what the DA's office is doing is refusing to look underneath what's on the surface to see how bad it is, how big it is, how terrible the situation is. You'd agree with that analogy? Absolutely. Um, I think that what's important to realize is, is that the Department of Justice suggested that this is just the tip of the iceberg. They mostly looked at the Narcotics Bureau, which has um, been renamed, I think, the Firearms Unit of some sort. Um, but they said that they, due to the lack of evidence and due to the lack of documentation, they really couldn't figure out how, how wide the scope was of the misconduct. One thing I was struck at that didn't come up in the argument yesterday, really, was that this finding by the Department of Justice about a pattern of and practice of police misconduct and lying by the Springfield Police Department was the only pattern and practice uh, report that was cre that was the result of an investigation, the only one during the Trump administration. Does that not have some currencies? Does that not resonate? Well, it certainly resonated with us. Um, I mean, I think it was amazing that there was only one investigation and Springfield Police Department was it, right? There are a lot of bad things happen, but the only police department in the country that warranted an investigation was um, in the, during the Trump administration was the Springfield Police Department, but the, uh, the justices did not raise it in their questioning. Now, one aspect of the case that is uh, of, of significant interest to the justices based on their questions yesterday is that there's a raft of material that the, the Committee for Public Counsel Services and the ACLU of Massachusetts claim has not been turned over, has not been made available to defense lawyers. That is part of the case. The other part is what about doing an investigation to find out what's below the tip of the iceberg? Stick with me, if you would, please, on what has and has not been made available to defense lawyers so far, three years plus, going on four years, after the DOJ said, there is a pattern and practice of misconduct and lying. You would think that would be of significant interest to the district attorney's office who used these police officers as witnesses. Tell us what has been turned over. Tell us what is still being kept secret. So, what... There are, according to the Department of Justice and the Springfield Police Department, the Springfield Police Department turned over about 114,000 pages of documents. Um, though of those documents, it appears that about 712 pages have been turned over, um, but they've also been redacted. So the full, we haven't received 712 pages of information. We've received 712 pages and some of them are fully blacked out, some of them um, are partially blacked out. That's all we've received. 
And what do you, what can you report to us and our listeners about how the Supreme Judicial Court justices, the seven of them, reacted to that information, which was emphasized uh, by Attorney Matt Siegel yesterday at the argument? I've been surprised by that. Um, but, you know, one of the questions they did ask is, well, why can't defense attorneys get that 114000 And the answer is, is because we're not entitled to it. Um, they wouldn't know what to give us, and they wouldn't give it to us unredacted, and we wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of it outside of, unless they gave us everything, you know, within kind of like that was relevant. So that's kind of where we're at, which is there's 114,000 pages. The district attorney's office was offered the opportunity to look at it. They declined, um, and we can't look at it. Rebecca Jacobstein, you and I were chatting before we went on the air, and I asked you a question that apparently I was wrong about. That happens a lot around here. Um, but it was whether or not what happened at yesterday's argument is uh, extremely unusual. I've never seen it before. Appellate arguments are scheduled 15 minutes aside, except for first-degree murder cases, which are 20 minutes aside. Matt Siegel arguing on behalf of the ACLU of Massachusetts, uh, for Hamden County Lawyers for Justice, and the, uh, as well as two defense lawyers and two uh, clients, um, uh, got to his 15-minute mark, and uh, he recognized that the justices had asked a question. He was over, and then the argument went on for another 20 or 25 minutes. And then, of course, they had to give equal time to the uh, Hamden County DA's office lawyer as well. I've never seen that before. What does that tell you about the interest that the judge justices have in the case, if anything? I think it demonstrates that they're taking this really seriously, that they realize that this is a, that the issues that we have presented are important and that they're complicated, um, that there's not an easy, easy answer uh, either way on this. So they're I think they were spending a lot of time trying to figure out contours and where lines might be drawn. Um, and it took extra time for that reason. I would be interested to know from your point of view as chief counsel for the Committee for Public Counsel Services for the appellate work of CPCS, whether or not you agree or disagree with one point the justices were making yesterday, which is, look, you filed this lawsuit and at what, everyone else can, what everyone can see, even if the DA hasn't conceded, is that your lawsuit has forced them to make disclosures, getting to the DA's argument, which is, and therefore, court, you should not do anything. But how do you respond to the lawsuit has been successful in some ways so far already? Well, the lawsuit definitely has been successful in some ways. When we started this lawsuit, we did not know that there that the uh, Springfield Police Department had compiled some documents to figure out which cases um, of the few that the DOJ identified were the ones where um, they may have used excessive force and then covered it up. Um, we didn't have any of those hundreds of pages of documents that we eventually did get. So in that regards, we have accomplished something. Um, and since we filed this lawsuit, we also, the, the district attorney's office, which did not at the time have a Brady policy, has since adopted one. So some changes have been made, but it's, in our view, just not enough. Tell our listeners, please, what's Brady and what's a Brady policy? So um, Brady versus Maryland is the 
is the uh, Supreme Court case where they said that the government must turn over all exculpatory evidence in your case. And um, many district attorney's offices have a policy that explains what they must seek from their police officers and what they must turn over. And uh, the Hampton County District Attorney's Office did not have one. Does this case affect prosecutors and prosecutions in counties other than Hamden County? Is this going to have statewide significance? Well, to the extent that um, they suggest that changes to or are more explicit about what needs to be turned over and what needs to be requested and what needs to be sought out by the district attorney's office, that will impact all prosecutions in the uh, Rebecca Jacobson, this is Buzz, and just so listeners know, I have nothing to do with this case, which is called Graham versus District Attorney of Hamden County. And here's my question. I think listeners do know a lot about the drug lab scandals, and I thought that those cases made it clear that the Commonwealth, the government, has a duty to not only investigate, but disclose on a case-by-case basis egregious misconduct by government employers, employees, excuse me, who are participating as members of, in this case, a prosecution team. Uh, why don't the drug scandals, the drug drug scandal cases, actually resolve this issue? Well, we think they do. I mean, that's our position, and, and I think you've stated it exactly right, that if there's a member of the prosecution team that has committed misconduct, it is the Commonwealth's obligation to find out how far that misconduct goes and who's it impacted. And so that's our argument. One of the most fascinating parts of this case, and I think it's something that made a big impression as I watched the argument on, on, on the screen yesterday, was the policy of the Hamden County District Attorney's Office that they allow the Springfield police to decide whether or not information that they have about themselves is helpful, that is exculpatory, and should be turned over to this defense, that the Springfield Police Department itself makes this decision, and the Hamden County DA's office says, fine, whatever the police department says, that's what we're handing over, and if they don't give it to us, we're not going to do it. Is is that an oversimplification, or did I get that right? I believe that's their position. They took, they've taken that throughout our litigation, that they do not, they simply turn over what the police provide them. Um, and that was also their position in a case that was before the Supreme Judicial Court on Monday um, in, in a, different, a different case, but, in a different, but one of the prosecutors from their office made the same statement that if they don't give us everything, we proceed anyway. How disturbing is that? I mean, on a scale of one to 10? Sure. That's, that, that's, that's like, a, a, it's a 10. It's just, you know, the police are not lawyers. So they don't always know what is exculpatory and what's not exculpatory. Right. They are. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I interrupted you. I was just going to sort of make an analogy to, or a metaphor for the asking the Fox what happened in the hen house. It's just the same kind of thing. We're going to take a break at that on that note, and we'll be right back with the Committee for Public Counsel Services attorney Rebecca Jacobstein right after this. Smiling faces, smiling. 
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Local farms are the lifeblood of our valley, and boy, have they had a tough year. At Northeast Solar, we feel a deep connection to farms. Sustainable agriculture needs sustainable energy, and sustainable energy is our mission. Energy is often the single highest cost for a working farm. By reducing those costs with solar energy, farms can sustain their business, which helps them sustain our communities. Support our local farms. Learn more about Northeast Solar's work with local farms at northeast-solar.com farms. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th. Be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan. Subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender. Member FDIC. Member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Rebecca Jacobstein, who is appellate counsel for the Committee for Public Counsel Services. That's the state public defender agency. She was counsel for CPCS on the Graham case, argued before the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, argued at great length yesterday. She was also involved in the case and counsel on the case, and she argued before the Supreme Judicial Court on Monday on a case that raises related issues. Tell us about that case, if you would, please, Rebecca. And then I'm going to get to the question, which is how are these cases going to affect us who do not live in Hamden County? But let's hear about Monday's case. For Monday's case, um, we were an amicus, so we didn't represent either party. So we just were a friend of the court brief. And what we asked for um, was for the court to really specify the, the uh, information that needs to be turned over to defense counsel so that they can represent their clients um, fully and effectively. That's part of Graham as well, isn't it? It, it was. Um, that was a big part of Graham. And when we started Graham, it was the only game in town. But McFarlane um, was deterrent, was, there was a, a decision by the appeals court um, that went to this issue and the SJC um, took it so that they could review it and uh, provide more guidance, hopefully, to the to the prosecutors. During the break, Buzz had raised the issue with you, um, and I would appreciate your, your, your explication of this. Uh, what Buzz had said was, 
Look, there's something of a misunderstanding among a lot of people that the DA's job is to represent police departments and to prosecute and to get convictions. And that is, in fact, a very crabbed view of what DAs are supposed to do. And that issue actually is very much present in the Graham case argued yesterday. Your perspective on that, please. I think that's right, Bill. I think um, what the DA is supposed to do, what the prosecutor's job is, is to seek justice. And if that justice is a criminal conviction, that is justice. But if it's not, they need to get out of the way. And they are it is, they have an ethical obligation under the rules of professional conduct to turn over all exculpatory evidence and to make sure that every that trials are fair. When we talk about exculpatory evidence in the context of Graham and the Department of Justice report finding police misconduct, bringing of three charges, disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, A and B on a police officer to cover up the assault committed by the police officer, and then they lie about it in their police reports, and, and it goes on from there. The DA says, that's not for us to look into, um, and if we don't know about it because the officer who is now our for example, witness in this case doesn't tell us about it. That's the end of the story. Is that part of the complaint here in Graham saying, no, that's not enough for the DA to say, I don't know about it. I am just going to, well, proceed as if nothing happened because I don't know about it. Can you untangle that for me? So the Supreme Judicial Court has made it clear um, that the Commonwealth or the prosecutors have the duty to inquire um, for about this type of thing. They have to find exculpatory evidence. It's not enough for the police to provide it to them because again, the police don't always know it's exculpatory, but also because the police may have an incentive not to hand it over for whatever reason. It is incumbent upon the prosecutor to hunt it down. And there's a difference between making an inquiry and launching an investigation. They definitely at least need to ask and they need to ask the right questions. And you're telling our listeners that DAs don't necessarily do that as a matter of course? Well, it does not appear that the, the uh, prosecutors in Hamden County do that as a matter of course, um, based on what we have learned about their practices and procedures during this litigation. So let's go back to this question of uh, the case that you argued on Monday, the name of which is what for our listeners, please? That was Commonwealth versus McFarlane. And Graham, which is Graham versus the DA's office. I'd like to go back to the question of how these cases could affect criminal prosecutions in counties other than Hamden County, whether or not they could make a difference here in Franklin and Hampshire counties, for example. Absolutely. To the extent that the Supreme Judicial Court uh, provides more guidance to prosecutors about what they have to ask for, it will, it will I mean, I want to say, don't want to say force, but it will enable um, prosecutors in other counties and require them to ask the same questions of all their people. Um, I believe that, I believe that Northwestern was part of amicus briefs that were filed that actually they all from by on behalf of the district attorney's offices, some of them. And I, and they, where they asked for this, they are worried about their relationships with their police departments. And if they ask these questions without the without you know cover from the Supreme Judicial Court, they get blowback and they don't like it. 
In other words, if the DA's office says to the police department, give us information that might cast doubt on the credibility of a given officer who is a witness or an investigator or otherwise involved and part of the prosecution team in this case, that causes friction between DA's office and police departments, and that's something the DA's offices don't want, and therefore they're looking for the court to tell them what they have to do. Is that a fair, fair summary? That's how I read their briefs, that they want the court to tell them what to do so that, you know, they can say, I'm only doing this because the Supreme Judicial Court is making me. Let me ask you this. You started our conversation today by noting that there are 114,000 pieces of paper that the Department of Justice reviewed um, that the district attorney's office has not turned over to defense lawyers that speak to this question of police misconduct, false reports, uh, and the like. Do you expect to see those 114,000 pieces of paper or not? Not from the Hamden County District Attorney's Office. They've made it quite clear that they have no um, intent or interest in reviewing them. Although they did point to the fact that they sued the DOJ to get all of that material. Yes or no? No, they did not. They sued the uh, Department of Justice to get the materials that the Springfield Police Department offered them, but they wouldn't get from Springfield. They went to the Department of Justice and said, give us the materials that specifically speak to um, the findings of excessive force and, and, then, and cover up. They wanted the ones that had uh, false reports and they, the Department of Justice um, did not provide that to them. So what happens now? How long till there's a decision? Usually about four months, but it can take as long as it takes. Right. The Supreme Judicial Court on its own motion to itself can grant itself an extension. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> Rebecca Jacobstein, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for your representation. Good luck with the case. Thanks for the argument on Monday. And we'll have you back on the show again soon, I hope. And thanks for all you do. We should know one final thing. I've been referring to Rebecca as the chief appellate counsel, which is true. She actually has a title, the director of strategic litigation for CPCS. So we thought we should note that at least once during the broadcast. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, Bill. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The trial in Hampshire Superior Court of Cara Rintala continues today. The two officers who were first on the scene at the Granby home where Rintala's wife was found dead testified yesterday. Both officers testified they found Cara Rintala sitting at the basement floor with her wife's body on her lap. Time of death is also a big factor in the case. As Rintala had said, she spoke with her wife at 3 p.m., but the state medical examiner says Anna Marie Cochran Rintala was dead long before that. This is the fourth murder trial for Rintala. A Hadley woman who unleashed bees during an eviction notice in Longmeadow says she will defend herself at trial. 
55-year-old Rory Woods dismissed her defense attorney this week and against lawyer's advice wants to take the case to trial. Woods pleaded not guilty in October 2022 to multiple felony charges of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, the bees, and disorderly conduct. Woods will be assigned a new public defense attorney. She told New York Magazine that this is not about a few sheriffs getting a few honeybee stings. It's about predatory lending, which is thriving in Massachusetts and beyond. Northampton Mayor Gina Luisera announced she has selected benefit specialist Chad Dunham as the city's next director of human resources. Mayor Shera said Chad exemplifies our strong succession planning, benefiting from years of mentoring and extensive training. She added that she's thrilled that Dunham, pending city council confirmation, will lead the human resources department for Northampton. Dunham has a master's in business administration and currently lives in East Hampton. Mostly sunny today, low humidity, a high of 72 to 76. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures dropping through the 60s and chilly, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. A few scattered showers from the western fringes of Hurricane Lee on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Are you at a dead end when it comes to dealing with that awful joint pain? So was Rick Rawlings. I did a year and a half of steroidal injections in my shoulder, both shoulders. They weren't helping at all, and it was just a Band-Aid. As for the constant pain medication prescriptions... I didn't get any relief. I didn't get any sleep, so I just stopped taking them. I didn't want to get hooked on drugs. But one day... I heard a uh, commercial on the radio about QC Kinetics. Rick called QC Kinetics and learned all about natural biologic therapies, non-surgical treatments that actually help the body restore damaged joint tissue. And it was life-changing. After doing the QC Kinetics, I feel like I have a new life again. Today, my shoulders feel wonderful. My only regret was I wish... I had done it sooner. From dead ends to new beginnings. Call today and learn about QC Kinetics long-lasting relief. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. We welcome back to the show Rabbi Ricky Kozowski, who is the rabbi at the Reformed Jewish Congregation Beta Hava in Florence. We have her with us today in particular because we want to hear about the Jewish High Holidays, the Jewish High Holy Days, which are about to begin. So, Rabbi, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with the tradition and this religious observance, tell us what it is and why. 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. So close to Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which begins this Friday night at sundown. Um, so the Jewish people were about to embark on this journey that we call the 10 days of awe or the awe as the also I refer to them as the 10 days of awesome. Um, and these are also called Yamim Noraim. And they start with the Jewish New Year, which, uh, as I said, begins this Friday night on Rosh Hashanah. And then it lasts through Yom Kippur 10 days later, which is the Day of Atonement. So we have a kind of uh, lunar and solar combined calendar. So the holiday always falls around now, but give or take a couple of days. So we're right in the middle of September this year. Explain this chronology, if you would, which I don't think is self-evident to many people that the days of awe, the 10 days, start with the new year. People celebrate, but then they end with the day of atonement. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems to me, always struck me this way as a young person, and I've kind of hung on to this, it almost seems a little backwards. Wouldn't you start by conf uh, essentially uh, this this examination of oneself and this uh, self-critical kind of view of what you have done wrong in the past year and then end with the celebration. But that's not how it works. So explain that to me. Yeah, no, it's a complex cycle. It's kind of like a deep spiritual, psychological like survey of what, you know, what is it, what goes on in the human psyche in order to make changes for the new year. So you could say you could start with all the heavy stuff and, you know, all the apologies and forgiveness and all the, you know, looking back at your life and ways you want to make amends. Or you could start with a really exciting celebration where we all come together as a community. We celebrate the renewal. It's, it's literally the renewal of the world. So one of my favorite parts, I think one of many, many. Yeah, it's, you know, so, and we, yeah, and we want to give each other blessings. So we have lots of symbolic foods like dipping apples into honey and the challah bread is shaped rounds because, we, you know, the year is like a cycle and we're beginning again and we're celebrating the fullness, literally the pregnancy or the potential of the year that's ahead. So we really start with that. I know we're going to talk about the shofar too, but the shofar, which is the ram's horn, uh, is blown on Rosh Hashanah. But I think that actually relates to your question because uh, when we blow the shofar, the sounds are so startling and jarring and um, meant to really awaken the soul so that you can do this individual journey that we each have to do during these days of awe about um, really looking back at what we've done and either making amends or changing our ways or just really examining our deeds and of course make apologies and uh, inroads where those need to happen as well. But I think it starts with a joyous moment. Like who wants to start with heavy duty dread on the first day of the year? <laughs> okay, I have a couple questions about the shofar. One is there are instructions, well, requests by a person from to the person blowing the shofar. Um, there are words that the shofar, the sounds that they make are specific. And I would appreciate it if you would share with us what they are, because it's not just noise. It's specific sounds. Right. Yeah, right. So the, so the shofar, it's like an instrument. I mean, it's a ram's horn, but, um, or it could be some other forms of horns from other animals too are acceptable. Um, Yes, but there's different blasts. They each represent different things. So the first one is called tikiyah, which um, is like one long whole note. And then 
there it's like i'm sorry i don't have my shofar with me that was was unplanned that it would be with me right i was hoping to actually have a shofar to blow but there's one long whole note called takia then the next uh note is called shivarim which is three short blasts so it's like do 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 kind of like that and it sort of represents how we start off whole and then we come we become broken in our lives so we you know things happen uh, nobody experiences nobody does not experience loss at some point or hardship and then the third blast is called true ah which is actually kind of like nine staccato notes pretty fast it's like do and you hear that one and then it always goes back to the first one takia which is the whole note do 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 for takia and then at the and you repeat that cycle a number of times you actually get to a hundred different blasts and then the last one is the long takia called takia gadola and whoever is blowing shofar holds it literally as long as they can go and i've heard people go like i don't know i don't really remember a minute and a half or so there's like as a kid we would look up at the clock and start counting seconds and get all excited and it's it's really an incredible experience because it, it the whole cycle kind of goes on long enough that you kind of you get out of your mind and you're in your heart and you're listening and uh, it's really meant to awaken and evoke kind of change or a soul cry and it means different things to different people but um but those are pretty much the brass at blast and probably some of them were battle cries or meant as different things back you know in the day like biblical times and um you know are meant to really awaken uh different different things that we need to do to awaken ourselves for the new year. So I hope that's a good summary. It is. Thank you. Is the blowing of the shofar, was its genesis to awaken people? Because it does wake you up. Um, yes. Well, I think it's, I, I, the, the, it's actually in Leviticus. Um, and it says, you shall observe a complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. So, it's not so specific in the in the Bible what you're supposed to do, other than you're supposed to hear true ah, which is the last blast that I was talking about, the long do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And then the rabbi sort of created this whole um, rhythm or this cycle later that, that we do today. But um, uh, yeah, I think it's meant, it, 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 we ascribe to it. We've been trying to figure out for thousands of years, like, why do we do this? What's the goal? So there's lots of really beautiful commentary about this idea of wake, awakening our soul. But we do know that was the way they, they blasted in the, the holiday. And then it, uh, the commandment is actually to listen to, there's a prayer that you say, it's not actually to blow, you don't have to have a chauffeur and blow, but but the, the commandment is that every person will hear it. So it's important that, um, that you're in the presence of the shofar to actually hear the shofar. Let me ask. Let me ask you this. I think I just heard you say that you can blow the shofar. You know how to do this. For someone who had a lot of trouble trying to learn the trombone when I was a very young person, <laughs> this is impressive. How long does it take to learn to blow the shofar and to make those notes? Well, I am really not a good shofar blower, to be honest. But I, I've just always known a lot of good shofar blowers, so I haven't had to do that. But it's really not that hard. I think once. You know, even kids, once you pick it up, if someone shows you the right um, mouth sound, like if you're a trombone or trumpet or, you know, a horn player, you can do a much, you know, bigger, better sound, I think. You know, you know how to work your breath, et cetera. But it's, it's, 
it's a little bit like blowing a kazoo, I guess. Once you actually put your lips on the thing, it takes a little practice, but um, it's not actually meant to sound perfect. I think that's one of the wonderful things about a shofar is that it is kind of a raw sound. It's like the rabbis have compared it to the sound of like an animal crying in the thicket. Uh, which is a very evocative sound also, or of crying out to God, or of a baby, the way a baby cries. It's like, it's really loud. It's like this bleeding, bleating sound that, you know, is meant to say, hey, I need something. Pay attention to me. And, you know, I'm here. And that's um, kind of what the shofar is. So I bet, you, Bill, you could probably blow. In fact, I bet you could blow shofar. You never heard what my trombone sounded like. You wouldn't say that so cavalierly. <laughs> I would like to ask this question. Um, you mentioned the 10 days, the days of awe. And one of the things that uh, Jews say to each other and to others um, at the beginning of the days of awe, Rosh Hashanah, uh, is uh, blessings to you for a sweet and happy year. The other thing that is repeated often by the rabbis is, may you be inscribed in the book of life. I understand the first part, the sweet and happy year. What does it mean to be inscribed in the book of life? Yeah, it's a pretty intense concept, this idea. I mean, I think it's metaphorical, but it's also just this beautiful idea that there is this book of life and um, we each are inscribed at the beginning of the year in into the book of life. We do our own internal work and our work between us and with other people or between us and our own sense of God, whatever that means. And then um, we're literally praying that we are each inscribed in the book of life. And um, so the Jewish tradition is kind of tricky. On the one hand, this is a time that's like a portal. So we're in this liminality where we are praying and doing all this intensive work. And it's bolstered by the whole community doing it together. Like who wants to do this on your own. It's not like going home and just, you know, sitting at your house and watching TV or something. It's like, we're all collectively knowing that everywhere, Jewish communities everywhere are going through this. People are gathering in whatever ways, secular, religious, there's such a range of ways of celebrating this time, but that um, this idea that we're each signed in literally or metaphorically, and that we have, on the one hand, everything's preordained. Like we don't know what's gonna happen to the world. We don't know what's gonna happen in our lives you know, so much is to chance or we just don't know what's going to happen. But at the same time, we also have free will. So there is a lot that we have control over with our intentions um, and our goals and the, our behavior and the choices that we make. So I think that's the part that, um, you know, there's beseeching to God that everything goes right this year, that I'm healthy, that my family's healthy, my community's healthy. But then there's the part that I have some control over. So I think it's a little bit of a dance that as we're using this time to really uh, sort of focus our intentions. And it's a beautiful image, I think, of um, being signed into the book of life. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a midrash that every person, uh, that God signs everyone in, in their own handwriting. So your handwriting is signed in somewhere into the book of life. But there's a lot of ways to take it. But um, we also, in our tradition, say that you can make amends throughout the year. It's not just this time of year, but it is a kind of time where we're hyper-focused on that, that well, aspect because, you know, you got to have something <laughs> to start the year. 
Rabbi Ricky, before we take a break, this is Buzz, in a couple minutes we have, I, I, I want to follow that by just pointing out my rabbi when I was growing up was Rabbi Herbert Hendel, and he always said that uh, it, it's, while it's important to be written in the Book of Life by asking God for forgiveness during this period of reflection and atonement, it's most important that you figure out how you could forgive yourself. Reflect enough so that you could mm-hmm. figure out what you have done and understand how to forgive yourself. But my question for you is really about why do we call these 10 days of awe 10 days of dread? I've never understood that. Mm. Well, you know, I think it just depends on translation, but that's a beautiful thing that your rabbi said. So I'm going to, I'm going to take that in this, these, these holidays also and play with that and really think about that. Um, but the Hebrew word is yamim noraim, which means the days of awe or awesome. But it comes from the same root. The same root in Hebrew for awe is also for is the same root for fear. So they kind of go together. And I think it really sort of depends on how you understand it. But if you understand that this these are the days of fear and dread, that makes sense because um, it is kind of scary. This is heavy work. And if you're thinking of it as like what I do and pray and say and how many times I beat my chest and, you know, all of that in these 10 days is going to affect the outcome of the year. That's one thing. On the other hand, we have a lot to really dread. Like we are living in just a just awful, scary time with climate change right now and with many other things going on in the world. And we we should be scared. Like there should be an amount of fear um, that motivates us as well as sort of awe of the universe that will also motivate us. So I think, I think both are kind of appropriate if we're really thinking about what's going on in the world right now. We are speaking with Rabbi Ricky Kozowski. Rabbi Ricky will be back with us for more discussion of the high holidays, the high holy days, the days of awe. And I want to ask her about why do we fast and how do we throw away and what is the ceremony of Tashlik of throwing away our sins? We'll be right back. Especially... routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, When you need help with a claim or anything else, just call or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy or Kelly or Mindy or Valerie or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance, local people, local service, 
Local Insurance. Call 586-1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. As the Jewish High Holidays, the Jewish High Holy Days are about to begin, we continue our conversation with Beta Hava Rabbi Ricky Kozowski. Rabbi Ricky, I want to ask you a number of aspects of this celebration and observance. One is this service of Tashlik. Tell our listeners what that is and why it matters. Yeah, so we have, a, we have a number of customs over the holidays. One of them we talked about before was blowing the shofar. Um, but another is that we go to a river or some water, the ocean, if you're near the ocean, and uh, you literally cast away your sins or the things that you want to let go of. And, um, you know, it's in nature. It's not in a synagogue. It's, um, it's not usually in your house. It's like actually going out somewhere in nature, usually with a group of people. And um, in traditional times, I think they would empty their pockets of crumbs, like literally turning their pockets inside out and shaking out the crumbs. In other communities, they would throw little pebbles. Um, it's, it became a custom to actually bring bread and throw breadcrumbs, although we're, um, we're, we're trying to dissuade people from doing that a lot because it interrupts the fish and everything else that goes in the water. But, um, but it's a wonderful custom, and you can have different intention about it. So it can be casting away sins. That's sort of maybe the original idea, as it was understood. But we like to also just let go of the things that we want to let go of. And there's something really just magical about actually taking a physical object and throwing it, you know, into the river or into, you know, whatever water that flowing water that you're near. And, um, you know, there is a release that goes with that. And um, we um, will be doing it as Jewish community. People will be doing mostly on Sunday this year, which is the second day of Rosh Hashanah this year. It's traditional not to do the Tashlik ceremony on Shabbat, although some communities do it on Shabbat. Um, Beta Hava is going to be doing it at three o'clock at the Mill River on Saturday. I believe CBI will be at four o'clock at the Mill River on Saturday and other communities are doing it at different times. And people can also just do it on their own, but it's a it's it's a really wonderful gathering. People are casual, and I will say, I usually bring my dog. The dogs go into the river, and if you're throwing crumbs, the dogs go after the, the crumbs or the bread. But um, if you're throwing rocks, be careful because there's often little kids. You don't want to. The kids are actually the ones throwing the rocks. But if, but people really do take this. Um, it's it's quite powerful to do something physical and embodied, and I think that's what I love about all of our Jewish rituals is that you know there's time for praying and there's time for being in nature and they kind of all work together. Rabbi Ricky, and the word tashlik literally means to send away. So if you think of it as like, what do we want to release? Like, what do we want to really let go of? Rabbi Ricky, one one observance is fasting on uh, Yom Kippur. Why do we fast? 
Right. So fasting is by many cultures and many religions and, you know, many people for different ways. Like on the one hand, it's kind of like a physical purge. It's like a cleansing of your body. So there's that, you know, we're, we're aiming for purity and really beginning again. There's also um, the Talmud talks about uh, Inui Nefesh, which is kind of like make your soul suffer. So there are all these things that we do to on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, you know, that are that include fasting. You don't have to fast if you're if you have a physical reason or pregnant women or if you're ill or children under 13. You know, there's different, you know, categories of people that. Have, and of course, if you're, you know, if you just feel like you can't or you're the expert is what the Talmud says. You don't even need a doctor to corroborate. It's like if you say, you know, I, I shouldn't be fasting then, you know, you don't have to. But but the tradition is this idea that, um, you know, we experience the world differently. And of course, when you fast, there's other things that happen too. Like, um, well, you might just be too tired <laughs> to pay attention to what you're actually saying. But, um, but, you know, sometimes it can really put you in touch with issues of hunger, which we also talk about on Yom Kippur. That's one of the prophetic readings from Isaiah talks about, is this the fast I've intended? It's it's you know it's meant to make you think about the people who uh, ha- who don't have enough food to eat and you know who are in shackles and don't are homeless and so that's one of the reasons on Yom Kippur that we really it's a kind of um, awakening our soul on a different level. So those Rab- are Rabbi, those, we're going to have we have to leave it there. I want to say one quick word, which is one thing that we are taught is that asking for forg- forgiveness is between us and God. When you want forgiveness from the person or persons, you have to go ask them. Rabbi Ricky, thank you so much for being with us. A very happy and blessed New Year to you. Thank you. We're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. WHMP Northampton. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And uh, it is Thursday. This is the time when we all get to enjoy uh, the, the Science and Sensibilities segment by Brian Adams. It is harvest time approaching and we've got grapes and wine dancing in our dreams right now, Brian. Wine is sunlight held together by water. A great quote from Galileo, who went to jail. I don't think for that quote, but, but for the audacity of saying we're not the center of the universe. Um, today we're going to talk about some really fun stuff. The science of growing grapes and the science of making wine. 
And we're joined in the studio by Ed Hamill. He is the owner, what co-owner of Glendale Ridge Vineyard in West Hampton, Massachusetts. And wine steward, no, wine grower, a grape? Winemaker. Winemaker, thank you. Uh, Tim <laughs> Tim Boudre, I want to say it in French, Boudreaux, but I think it's uh, Boudre, um, who uh, also works for Glendale Ridge as well. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, the science of growing grapes is really interesting. Uh, 8,000 years old, right? Uh, and tell us how it is changed over the years. It's still the same thing. Stomp on grapes, get the juice, put it in the bottle. Ed, start us off with how things work in the vineyard. How do you get a grape to get into a bottle? Well, I'm going to let Tim talk about the bottle part. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I take charge of the growing part. And I take a lot of pride in spending a lot of time in the vineyard managing the vines. Um, yeah, it is. It it is a lot of sunlight required. Grapes like a lot of sun. Back uh, thousands of years ago, the grapes used to grow on trees. Today, we've improved that to develop trellis systems, which um, uh, expose the grapes to uh, maximum amount of sunlight, airflow, and uh, just a general design that that grows and develops good grapes. It's been a tough year for farmers out there. Uh, the deep freeze in February of minus whatever it was, seven or eight degrees. The freeze in May again. The torrential rains in July. How has this year been for you, Ed? And the, and are the grapes doing okay? It's been a challenge. Uh, so much, so much reflects back to last year where we had uh, the drought, the, the heavy drought, and the grapes actually thrived in that drought. This year has been just the opposite with a lot of rain and a lot of oppressive weather, cloudy days, smoke, uh, lack of sunshine, rain. Um, so they, they've, they've been behind all year. This, this uh, recent week of 90-degree weather has actually helped our vines, pushed them along a little bit further, especially the reds, the red grapes. Um, uh, it's Fortunately, we're on a pretty dry site. We're also on a gentle sloping eastern slope, so we get some airflow, which helps a lot as well. And uh, the other part of it is that we've got 90% of our grapes are hybrid varieties, and the hybrid varieties withstand uh, temperature extremes better. They, they, uh, they do a better job of, of preventing disease. So, so we've actually done okay this year with, with what we're growing. I want to go back to this February deep freeze when it was minus 7 or 8 Rumor has it you were out there with hay bales burning uh, hay at 3 in the morning, you and Tim and a bunch of other people, right, to just try to elevate the temperature a little, uh, a little bit above uh, freezing so that um, you didn't lose your whole crop. How successful was that? And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, it was successful. Um, uh, it, it, also was, it also happened to be during the, the, uh, the red flag uh, fire warning which was a little bit of a challenge in itself. So I met with the, the fire department who gave us permission to go ahead and burn because we're surrounded by a lot of green hay fields. Uh, he felt like it was safe. There was no wind. Um, yeah, we set, up, uh, we set up 64 fires with 128 hay bales that uh, myself, Tim, and Amy uh, attended to. I started lighting fires at 2.45 a.m. And the fires were, were roughly seven feet apart, uh, which... which um, promoted enough heat that we actually did save the vines. We, uh, we, save, we, save, we saved the vines so that we actually have a decent crop growing right now that we're going to harvest in about a month. 
you bought the farm, Ed, in 1992, I believe, the farm in, uh, in West Hampton, which was an old uh, cow farm, I want to say, or dairy farm, correct? Correct. And you knew nothing about grape growing. In fact, you bought the farm without even thinking that you were going to grow grapes. How did you learn how to do this and make such a successful business growing grapes? So, you know, I, I want to say it's, it's, it, it mostly has to do with a passion, passion towards doing something and doing something the right way. No matter what it is, you got to, whatever you do, you got to do it the right way. Uh, there was, there, there's a lot of help out there um, in terms of, in terms of reading materials, especially from Cornell University. Uh, but then the other thing that I, that I found uh, in, in, uh, in talking to various uh, growers, vineyards, farms, is that they are extremely cooperative and very helpful. If, if I have questions about something, there's, there's, there's a couple of guys in the Finger Lakes I can call. There's a couple of guys in Long Island that I can call and, and ask more specific questions. So they've been really helpful. And I, 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 I kind of grew up a little bit on a farm. So my grandfather was an old Yankee farmer in Vermont. We used to spend a lot of time up there as a kid, and uh, he grew a lot of stuff, and I always enjoyed being around that stuff. So I did always want to grow something. I just didn't know it was going to be grapes. And here you go, uh, 40 years later, something with a very successful vineyard in West Hampton. How many acres do you have? How many vines? And what kind of grapes do you grow? It's an 80-acre farm with uh, five acres of of vines. Uh, The primary varieties that we have are Cabernet Franc, Aramella, Arctic Riesling, Itasca, Vidal Blanc, Traminette, and Coronawa. And when you, I, I've always wanted to, an answer to this question. For a red wine, is it a red grape? Uh, I mean, is it, how, how, what makes a red wine red and a white wine white? Uh, maybe we can turn to Tim for this. And a rose, rose. And a rose, rose. Yeah. Um, so actually, it's all about the skins of the grape. So there's a lot of wines like Pinot Gris, Pinot Grigio. If you look at the grape on the actual vine, it actually is red or pink. So you would think if you pick those grapes and fermented it, it's going to have that same color. But it's all about skin contact. So you can actually make a white wine out of Merlot if you want to. It's just all about harvesting it and pressing it right away. Um, Inside of the red grapes, the juice is white. So, again, it's all about the time that the juice is spending in contact with the skins. I don't know whether this question is for Ed Hamill or for Tim Beaudry, but when will the, at your, at Glendale Ridge Vineyard, when will the grapes be harvested and who's going to do it? It must take a lot of time to do it. Well, we actually had our first small harvest last week on our Atasca grapes. Uh, it wasn't very big. It was, uh, it was uh, two or 300 pounds, I think. So we got started. Uh, it was, it's good that we did that in a sense because it's a warm-up for what's to come. Um, most of our harvest, remaining harvest, is going to be October, uh, progressively starting maybe October 5th-ish and finishing at the very end of October with our Cabernet Franc. That would be the last variety that we pick. And this is dependent on frost? What if a heavy frost comes in middle of October? Can you pick after frost? Yes. That, uh, so a heavy frost will kill the leaves. And if the leaves die, then the grapes won't ripen anymore, but they can still hang. Mm. And you're looking for volunteers to pick grapes because it's a huge undertaking. Can people sign up? And uh, something romantic about being in a vineyard in October with a beautiful fall day picking grapes. Are people can call you and be part of that action? 
Yeah, we are promoting that on Facebook and on our webpage, yes. Um, it, again, it's pretty much October. It'll be four different, uh, four different dates. Usually we try to, try to do it on a Saturday or a Sunday, working with the weather, working with the temperature uh, and the rain. Uh, so, so I'll give you an example. Last year, last year uh, the one acre of Vidal Blanc that we have, uh, we harvested 5.2 tons. And we had, I think we had uh, maybe 28 volunteers. We started at 8, 8 a.m., we do do a coffee break. We do do lunch, but we finished. We actually finished at two thirty. Well, coffee break, not a wine break. Tim wasn't done at two thirty though. That's when his work really began. <laughs> and Tim, let's talk about the work that you do as the winemaker. My, I know very little about winemaking. You know, you just stomp on the grapes and then you put the juice in the bottle. Simple as that, right? Um, for me, I try and keep it as simple as possible. So Ed does a great job in the vineyard, giving me the best possible grapes. And I try and do as minimal work possible. Um, I really want the grapes to be expressive in the wine. Normally for white wines, we'll press the white grapes right away and get the juice. What does press mean and how do you press grapes? So we have a large, um, pneumatic press that's the size of a truck and we'll load in the grapes that we've harvested from the vineyard into the press and it will do a few different extraction rounds as inflatable bladder on the inside. And basically all I want from the white grapes is juice. The rest of the stuff we'll throw into compost or we'll get rid of, and I just want the juice and I'll ferment the juice on its own. So if we volunteer, we don't get to take off our shoes and dance on the If you volunteer, you can do whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, is the answer to that. At least not your shoes. So Tim, so what? So the fermentation process, how does that work? Um, so yeah, for the white grapes, like I said, you just get the juice from um, the white grapes and the skins, the solids you get rid of. Rosé is a little bit of contact with red grapes, so like Merlot, for example. We'll let it sit on the skins for maybe a day or two, um, just to get a little bit of pink color, and then we'll ferment that pink juice. Red will ferment everything together, and that's really where the red color comes from. Um, so that fermentation sometimes ranges from five days to two weeks. And is that out of the bottle, the fermentation process? You haven't put it in a bottle yet, is that correct? It's out of the bottle. It's before, well before going into a bottle. Um, so normally, for example, if I'm making Vidal Blanc, which is a white grape variety we have on our property, I'll throw it in our large press, get the juice, and then I will add yeast to the juice, and the yeast consumed sugar that's naturally present in the juice converts it to ethanol, alcohol, and then also generates heat and CO2. Those are the byproducts. So Glendale Ridge winemaker Tim Beaudry, where did you learn this skill, and how precise is your palate? How how distinguishing is your palate? Um, I actually started at Glendale Ridge back in 2017, I believe. Um, Was interested in winemaking, never really had any background in it. Did my first harvest, and then I decided that I wanted to get out and get some international experience. So I moved to New Zealand for about a year, worked at a small vineyard in central Otago, then a large uh, winery in Marlboro, which is where all of our Sauvignon Blanc that we get from New Zealand comes from. And then while I was there, I applied for grad school in Bordeaux. So I lived in Bordeaux for a couple of years and went to school to study winemaking and vineyard management and was working for a French family out there that owned a chateau or a winery. They purchased a property in Napa, and they sent me over to help start up with Napa, and I've been back for about a year now. My face is turning uh, uh, rosé out of envy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tim, what is the biggest challenge that that you see in making a good bottle of wine? 
That is a very good question. Um, I know for me, the best is, for example, last year was a great year, sunny, dry, great conditions for growing grapes. So like I said, I got beautiful grapes that came in and I just kind of let them ferment, do their thing. Everything was perfect. I don't have to do any manipulation really. So I think climate change is definitely our biggest factor. Um, extreme weather, whether it's extreme rainfall or extreme drought, those are definitely gonna be our biggest issues. Um, also past invasive species like the spotted green lantern flies. I think I said that correctly. Those are starting to pop up and those definitely attack uh, vineyards. So it's something we have to look out for in the future. We've heard this uh, from all the farmers that we've interviewed. The climate change is just the new normal and not knowing what the weather is, is presents such a challenge. Bill, you have a question? I did. I'd like to go back to this question since you've been mentioning rosé. And there's the old joke where someone goes into the wine store and says, I'd like to buy a really good rosé. And the person behind the counter says, that's an oxymoron. That's a contradiction in terms. <laughs> Why is rosé frowned upon? I find it delicious. Good rosé I find fabulous in the summer. Talk to me. Yeah, um, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. Um, I just turned 34 yesterday. My parents are in their well, late happy 60s. Birthday. Thank happy you. birthday. Um, my parents' generation, I know it's something they stayed away from rosé because they associated with white Zinfandel, which was trendy when they started drinking wine, which was a sweeter pink wine. And I think a lot of Americans... Yeah, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to thumbs down on Zinfandel. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think a lot of Americans have a hard time because that's what our first uh, introduction to pink wine or rosé-style wine was. Um, but it's totally different than that. It's have, It has a long history in Provence, France, where that's usually the home, considered the home of rosé. And then now rosé is made all over the world, and it's more dry style. Some of it can be age-worthy in the barrel as well. Um, it's a good price point. It's easy drinking somewhere between a white and a red wine. So kind of appeals to more people, I would say. Well, it appeals to me. I'm a wine enthusiast. The more wine I drink, the more enthusiastic I get. Exactly. We're talking with Ed Hamill, uh, the owner and grower at Glendale Ridge Vineyard in West Hampton, and the winemaker, Tim Boudry. Stick with us, and we'll be right back talking about wine and winemaking. Vicky, Zalicia, and Zanette. I got a friend out at Kingston Springs named Vince Matthews. And Vince has got a good wife named Melba. And every year, Melba makes some corncob wine for Vince. This is a song about Melba's wine adventure. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Doing business in Amherst since 1968. Woman owned since 2017. Summerlin Floors does it all. Hardwood, carpet, porcelain tile, natural stone. Have you considered radiant floor heating? We're sales, we're design, we're installation. Our team at Summerlin Floors has been in the flooring business for over 50 years. People are pleasantly refreshed by the experience they get here compared to some of the, we'll say, bigger options in town. The bedazzling Deerfield Fall Arts and Crafts Festival returns to the beautiful village of Deerfield, September 23rd and 24th. Brighten your home or wardrobe. Choose from stunning yet affordable works by over 100 artisans, including a wonderful trove of gold and silver jewelry. But don't just take my word for it. Get the details at deerfield-craft.org. Celebrate a bright new fall season. Admission $5. 
children 12 and under free. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. It's a fascinating conversation that Brian Adams is, and his guests are engaged in regarding uh, wine, being uh, grapes being grown here and wine being made here at Glendale Ridge Vineyard. Uh, Brian. Um, we're talking with Ed Hamill and Tim uh, Boudre about growing grapes and making wine. Uh, I want to ask both of you about the labels on wine, something I'm really interested in. And I was looking on your website, and there's a 2019 Malbec. Here's the quote on the bottom. The nose is of dark fruit with a little smoke. Black cherry, strawberry, and cedar flavors shine with a beautiful acidity on the finish. And I'm thinking to myself, seriously? I mean, (laughs) um, you know, black cherry, strawberry, and cedar flavors? Where do you come up with these things? I mean, you just sit around, drink wine, and make this. I want to use a, you know, make this stuff up. Um, or is that is it really in there? Who decides? And does labels? your wine really have a nose? <laughs> I'm gonna let Ed talk about that first, and then I'll break down the science behind it. Afterwards, okay. Because okay. I know he has thoughts. <laughs> Ed. Yeah, so I'm the one that actually writes most of those descriptors. Um, uh, we 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 uh, we nose the wine as as it as it uh, as it's being made or as it is made, and and taste it. And it's interesting because one of the descriptors that that um, you never want to hear in in a bottle of wine is that it tastes like grapes. That's that's a bad connotation. So there's all these other descriptors. White wines have a lot of citrus and grapefruit, and red wines might have. Uh, uh, blackberry and and um, uh, cedar, so uh, and th- those flavors actually come out through the fermentation process. And when I focus, I do I can understand that. Yeah, yeah. Tim, you want to break down the science of this? Yeah. So it's something we call um, primary, secondary, and tertiary flavors and aromas, and that's talking about the different stages from grape fermentation and aging, where all these different notes come from. So primary is stuff that's locked into the grapes. So that's something if I grow Sauvignon Blanc in Massachusetts, if I grow in New Zealand, it's in the actual DNA of the characteristics of this type of grape. So you're going to get passion fruit or boxwood from Sauvignon Blanc, no matter what you do or what you grow with it. Secondary comes from the fermentation. That's if you're fermenting in stainless steel, if you're fermenting in oak barrels, what yeast strands you're using, because that can unlock different esters, aromas, flavors. 
And then tertiary is um, aging afterwards. So if you're using new oak barrels, it's going to have a lot of vanilla or chocolate or whiskey lactone notes. Neutral oak barrels will just impart a little, little tiny oak flavor. Um, so that's kind of the three different stages where you can pick up aromas and flavors. So it's uh, based on science when you look at these labels. It's not based just on science. Someone making stuff up after two or three glasses. So <laughs> I watched a fascinating documentary a number of years ago called Som. I think is is how you say it, um, and it's about four people trying to take this very difficult uh, sommelier. I think I'm saying that right. Exam. They would take a sip of wine and be expected to know where it came from in the world, often the vineyard that it it came from. How how do you do that? And, and can you do that, Tim? I mean, can you drink a glass of wine and know it came from a different vineyard somewhere in the world? Yeah, I've gotten pretty good at it, and it's honestly just trying different stuff. I've been lucky, like I was talking about before. I've lived kind of all over the place. Um, I've tried wines from all over the world, South Africa, Chile, Argentina, all over the U.S., Europe. Um, So it's all about memory, locking it in. But for those starting out or people that are interested in it, it's nice to walk through a grocery store, smell different herbs, go through the vegetables, fruit, just start picking up, and that kind of helps you tie and associate different flavors and characteristics that we pick up in wines. So, Brian, you got to drink more wine. <laughs> I guess that's it, yeah. Um, Ed, you got some events coming up. Do you want to share that uh, with our listeners? And also, how can people get in touch with you to visit the vineyard and do some of the tastings? Yeah, a week from Saturday, uh, we have we have what we're calling our Harvest Festival. There's going to be a, a, a maker's market. Uh, we've got live music all day. And um, uh, we're going we're gonna to release one of our new wines. That's going to be a surprise. It's a surprise because I forget which one it is. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of two different wines. I don't know the order. Uh, but um, you, you, you'll find out when you arrive. We'll give you a free sample. Uh, <laughs> and people that want to get in touch with you, how do they do that, Ed? Uh, well, they can call. Uh, they, can, they can make a phone call um, or uh, s- send an email. Um, that's typically... Um, uh, yeah, how how people will 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 get in touch with us. So we to have a good Glendale, we have a good to have, Glendale Ridge Vineyards. Correct, and we have a good Facebook page and a web page as well. A really nice website. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Ed Hamill, the uh, grape grower and the winemaker Tim Boudry of Glendale Ridge Vineyard. A wonderful place to go. It's a beautiful, beautiful views of the Mount Tom Range. I mean, it's just spectacular outdoor seating and indoor seating as well. Some good events coming up. Check them out. The science of growing grapes and the science of winemaking. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Good luck with your harvest. We're going to be right back. We're going to talk about the Amherst school situation right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. 
The trial in Hampshire Superior Court of Cara Rintala continues today. The two officers who were first on the scene at the Granby home where Rintala's wife was found dead testified yesterday. Both officers testified they found Cara Rintala sitting at the basement floor with her wife's body on her lap. Time of death is also a big factor in the case. As Rintala had said, she spoke with her wife at 3 p.m., but the state medical examiner says Anna Marie Cochran Rintala was dead long before that. This is the fourth murder trial for Rintala. A Hadley woman who unleashed bees during an eviction notice in Longmeadow says she will defend herself at trial. 55-year-old Rory Woods dismissed her defense attorney this week and against lawyer's advice wants to take the case to trial. Woods pleaded not guilty in October 2022 to multiple felony charges of assault and battery with a dangerous weapon, the bees, and disorderly conduct. Woods will be assigned a new public defense attorney. She told New York Magazine that this is not about a few sheriffs getting a few honeybee stings. It's about predatory lending, which is thriving in Massachusetts and beyond. Northampton Mayor Gina Louise Shera announced she has selected benefit specialist Chad Dunham as the city's next director of human resources. Mayor Shera said Chad exemplifies our strong succession planning, benefiting from years of mentoring and extensive training. She added that she's thrilled that Dunham, pending city council confirmation, will lead the human resources department for Northampton. Dunham has a master's in business administration and currently lives in East Hampton. Mostly sunny today, low humidity, a high of 72 to 76. Variable clouds tonight, evening temperatures dropping through the 60s and chilly, an overnight low of 44 to 50. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a high of 66 to 70. A few scattered showers from the western fringes of Hurricane Lee on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. A Coleman tent for how much? Coleman sleeping bags. You've never seen prices like these. The Coleman truckload sale, now at Yankee Candle Village. Coleman lanterns and flashlights, tents and sleeping bags, stoves and grills, and those Coleman coolers. Save 20, 40, up to 75% on first quality outdoor gear from Coleman. The Coleman truckload sale, going on right now through Sunday at Yankee Candle Village in South Deerfield. In 2022, Whole Children moved its campus to Northampton. We're continuing the same inclusive programming that we've been offering since 2004 to students of all ages with and without disabilities. After school and Saturday classes for this session run from October 3rd to December 9th. Take a look at the classes we have. Yoga, chorus, dance movement, cooking. Come take a tour. Scholarships available. Wholechildren.org. What do a gaggle of klezmer musicians, an Elvis impersonator, and a flash mob of 60-somethings dancing to Bob Dylan have in common? They'll all be at this year's Doozy Doo Parade, marching through Northampton on Saturday, September 23rd. That's right, the Doozy Doo is back for a second year with an even bigger celebration, raising funds for Northampton neighbors to provide free services for area seniors. The party kicks off from Holly Street at 11 a.m., heading up Main Street to Pulaski Park. Join the parade or donate at doozydoo.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. 
WHMP. And we are going to continue our um, inquiry, our look at what the Amherst School and um, the controversies that have been swirling um, for the past several months around the Amherst Schools, which uh, just keep continuing. And we are very lucky to have with us today uh, three folks who are really uh, quite involved, Ali Wicks Lim and M.J. Schwartz and Maxine Olen, who was actually involved with the original Title IX complaint. Folks will remember that the graphic, the student newspaper, uh, articulated concerns by students um, about the uh, insensitivity by some school officials towards uh, trans kids and LGBTQ plus kids uh, in the Amherst school system. That resulted in um, condemnation by parents and defense by others of school officials. Uh, ultimately, we now have school committee, uh, both Pelham school committee, uh, resignation by uh, Sarah Hall, um, the Amherst School Committee resignations um, and the Amherst Pelham uh, District School Committee, Ben Arrington, Allison McDonald, Peter Demling, they all resigned. The superintendent uh, eventually uh, resigned and there is an interim superintendent right now, uh, Slaughter, and a search is about to begin for a permanent superintendent. And here in the studio, I think we can talk to people. The school committee members resigned, claiming that they had been unfairly treated. There have been, Ali uh, was one of the co-authors of uh, a really uh, interesting article that said, no, the victims in the school crisis are not those school committee members, but rather those children who were harmed and the teachers who were unheard in the process. So um, there is so much more that we could do by way of introduction, but I would just be boring everybody, uh, including myself. So I think what we should do is what is not at all boring is actually hear from the Title IX complainant. So uh, Maxine Olin, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in that Title IX complaint? What precipitated it? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so I'm the parent of a non-binary trans child uh, who started the middle school, seventh grade, and um, immediately was feeling uncomfortable feeling unsafe in the hallways, uh, feeling like they were not being defended by teachers in classes, um, uh, feeling just generally unsupported. And I reached out for help, had a really hard time finding who the support people were. Um, uh, finally found the guidance counselor uh, who, who basically kind of denied our experience, would not use the correct name and pronouns for my child. Uh, you know, wouldn't or couldn't. It was unclear, but the effect was the same. Um, and then quickly, uh, a bullying situation occurred um, in which my child was, was trailed by uh, about 30 older boys. My very small child, 65 pounds at the time, uh, you know, I was surrounded regularly by a group of 30 older boys, yelled slurs at. Uh, they were barking at my child, so they would go into their classroom and sit down, uh, you know, to waiting for class to start, and these, these boys would pop their head in and bark at my child. They were making threatening sexual gestures. Um, and there was a tremendous fear and feeling of unsafety on the part of my child. And um, you know, we reported bullying incidents every day that this happened over and over again. When you uh, say we, who we, was reporting uh, it? I did, my husband, you know, so basically it and was And as far as your me. child, did they report it as well? Oh yeah, like everybody knew, everybody knew. The teachers knew, the, the principal was well aware. 
he was working on it. He said, I don't have enough staff. The staff, the, there was not enough staff to staff the hallways. There was not enough staff outside the building. Any place there was, you know, this was happening anytime there was really nobody watching the children. Um, and uh, he said, I'm working on it. It took over a month to resolve. Uh, finally, my child took a picture of one of the aggressors, and that child was suspended for a few days and sort of had some privileges taken away. But uh, everybody else just got a warning. It did mostly stop the bullying. Um, uh, but it was really, really damaging. Um, uh, their mental health just continued to decline. Um, they were later diagnosed with PTSD, which makes so much sense, but we didn't know that at the time. I mean, we knew they had anxiety and depression like so many kids uh, in middle school today, and especially queer kids. Um, but it really you know, became a situation where they could not stay in classes. They were having a really hard time. Uh, uh, like in, in crowded places like the cafeteria, um, they just couldn't be around crowds, around, um, around noise. And, uh, and we, we continue to seek help. I reported this all, everybody in the school knew. Uh, and then, you know, by the beginning of eighth grade, I contacted, um, the nurse suggested I contacted the Title IX coordinator. I didn't even know that such a person existed. Um, you know, that was not clear to me. Nobody said you should do this before. Um, so I reached out to her. As she said, I'm going to do an investigation. I know that both she and the principal reported that they w reported complaints um, to the superintendent's office about staff members, um, you know, for over a year before anything was done. Um, and, and eventually my child sort of just totally fell apart in eighth grade. Um, they couldn't stay in school. They had to be hospitalized. They were suicidal. They said school made them want to die. Um, and uh, we had to, you know, pull them out of school. So they went to, we tried to get support for them through a 504 and the, the school just couldn't provide the supports, or they denied most of the supports we requested. Uh, those weren't reproved until my child was hospitalized. Um, so the school really failed us in so many ways. Uh, by the time they came out of the hospital, we felt like that they tried to go back to school for a few days, and our psychologist said she's never done this before. She said, please pull them out of school. This is unnecessary torture, and I think you're going to be really, this is not good for them. How are they doing now? They're doing better, you know, in many, many ways. They're doing a lot better. We've gotten a lot of healing, a lot of, uh, we've seen a lot of doctors. We've, you know, spent a lot of time trying to get better. And they are in the high school right now, and they do have a lot of support. Um, but they are really worried still. And yesterday, some boys made some noises at them in the hallway. I hmm. reported an incident. I have not yet heard from the administration, but I'm not going to let this go. Um, they really want to be in high school. I know that your child also reported bullying on the part of some school officials. What yeah. Would, could you describe what that was? Well, I mean, it was, it was either ignorance or, or, or intentional, but, you know, the guidance counselor could not or wouldn't use the right pronouns and name for my child. They continually mix them up with the only other trans child in the room. Um, and they wouldn't use the pronouns, and I know that other people reported that. My child would wear a big pronoun pin on their forehead on top of their hat. They would wear it around their neck, and, um, and she ignored all of that. So, you know, it's a denial of identity. It's a denial, and that's part of the school rules, right, is that every child has the right to be called by their name and pronouns. So, um, you know, we just determined that this is not a safe person for my child to go to, and they said, I don't trust any guidance counselors. Um, 
you know, so they were basically denied that sort of tier one level support and had to find other people within the school community who would support them. And there are a lot of wonderful people, so I am grateful for that, but, um, but everybody knew this was going on. And everybody knew not to send the queer kids to these guidance counselors. You went and complained to the school administration about the counselors. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, officially complained in September of 2022. So almost a full year ago from now um, uh, that the, all this had happened. But honestly, the stuff with the school counselor was only part of it. It was the bullying. It was the fact that it was really hard to find support. It was the fact that it was um, really hard to change their name and pronouns. And none of that was clear. No, there were no policies. Uh, but I did complain about the guidance counselors. Um, they did ask me if I wanted to file a Title IX complaint at the time in September, and I chose not to. I mean, my child can, had to continue to work with this person, and I did not feel like it was my role to make this complaint. Everybody in the school knew about it. I trusted the school to deal with it appropriately. Maybe you could explain to our listeners, what is a Title IX complaint and update us on where it stands? Well, a Title IX is a federal law saying that everybody is protected from gender and sex discrimination um, in schools that in schools and other places that receive federal money. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, so it, an official report means it has to trigger an investigation. Um, but Title IX also says that if anybody in the school knows about discrimination, that they are required to remedy the situation and investigate it. So if a school official knows about it, they are required to do something about it. And that's your Title IX complaint, and that's pending? My Title IX complaint is so limited. I mean, the reality is that the complaint itself, which is I mean, it is in the final stages right now, is really about the guidance counselors. And it's well supported. I mean, I've seen the preliminary results, and there's a lot of support for everything that I said with, from multiple lines of evidence. Could you stay with the bullying for one more minute if you're sure. willing to share this? Every school has a bullying policy. It's a state law requirement. How did this system fail you and your child so badly? And why wasn't the policy followed, or was it? I mean, technically, I guess the policy was followed. They did an investigation, and they did resolve it in some way. But it, it took over a month, and it was not just my kid. I think there were many other kids uh, who were also being bullied. I, I don't know. I mean, I think from Desi's perspective, the Department of Education, sec you know, elementary and secondary ed, it was followed. But it really wasn't satisfactory, and it left a kid who was, like, completely shattered. And could you tell us whether or not your either your Title IX complaint or the other investigations ongoing, whether you came to some understanding about how many other kids had the same kind of experience as your child? Uh, well, I learned from the graphic article how many other kids, you know, that, were, that spoke to the student reporters, um, which was several. Um, but also after that uh, article came out, you know, several families who recognized us in the article, and I was anonymous in the article at the time, uh, reached out and said, oh my gosh, this totally happened to us too. We also had these horrible experiences with the guidance counselor. My child was also bullied. My also had to pull my kid out of school. My kid was also hospitalized. I mean, this was a sort of, they made it seem like every individual child was the only one, but there were so many kids that were going through stuff. and. You know, for good reason, people have been fairly private about it. These kids need their privacy, and this is, we're in, uh, and these kids are in a lot of pain right now. And uh, I really wasn't willing to speak up until my child was feeling better. They were in crisis up until late spring, and I really didn't feel like I could, you know, put the energy into, into speaking out publicly, although I did write a lot of letters. 
I think, by way of disclosure, just mm-hmm. being honest, I think it was probably about t- 10 years ago, I was teaching at GCC, and I used the wrong pronoun, unknowingly. Sure. It was uh, made apparent to me by that student during a break in the class. I used the right pronoun two or three times and then used the wrong pronoun again. And it took me a while to acclimate, especially today, because sure. I always use it as a plural. So is there some part of this that is understandable? Absolutely. You know, to, to a large extent, yes, we're all learning, and I do recognize that. But when a person is in the position of a guidance counselor there to support these very vulnerable children, I think they have a higher standard. Um, they should know how to do this and be willing to do this before they're even hired. Um, as well as if you're corrected, it is your job to do a better job, right, to practice and to get better. Um, so, Ali Wicks-Lim, uh, you've been following and involved in this. You have very strong and passionate feelings about this. Could you tell us, number one, why? And number two, what are those feelings? Yeah, certainly. And thank you for having us. Um, I, uh, I became involved in this when it became public, um, when there was a school committee meeting where uh, Mike Morris claimed to have... The former superintendent. Claimed to have no awareness of any of these complaints last April. And at the same time that that became public... All of the stories Maxine is sharing now became public about how he, in fact, had known for quite a while how this had been something that many staff members and people within the school community were aware of and how um, you asked a moment ago about how could this go on for so long without being addressed. It was one failure of leadership after another. And to recognize that it was finally coming out into the public and then being frankly lied about, that they were not aware, that they didn't know, um, I became really concerned about the impact that might have on queer and trans kids in the schools. Um, I am a member of the LGBTQIA community. I was a queer youth. I know what it means to have your stories of disclosure questioned. The first thing that um, former school committee member um, Peter Demling did when these issues were brought forward was to challenge them, to say that they were there was no proof, there was no evidence. And I thought about Kids like Maxine's kid sitting at home, becoming aware that finally their truth and their story was out in the world in a way that they might get some support and that the people in power who were supposed to be protecting them were lying and questioning them and denying it. And I became very concerned about that. And so I started showing up at all of the meetings and started noticing who else was showing up at all of the meetings. And we kind of began working together to make sure that those kids' voices were heard and to try to keep centering the conversation on the children, on the teachers, on the families, because there were so many distractions going on around the issue, and we really felt like it was important to keep the people who were most impacted central to the issue. Who were the we who began working together? So initially, there was a call at one point to come to one of the school committee meetings and just generally random people from the community, parents, community members, teachers, staff showed up. And um, over time, we started noticing who kept showing up. And then there were things written about in the Gazette, in the Indy, in the Bulletin. So you started recognizing names from that. And eventually, there were people communicating online with one another. It was really kind of a grassroots um, coming together of people who wanted to center these kids and teachers at a time when we had a school committee that was denying their experience and a superintendent that was denying their experience. And frankly, at the same time, there was this giant, you know, vote of no confidence going on that nobody was addressing. And we were just um, collectively unwilling to send students and teachers back into a school district that 
nobody had any confidence in and kids were unprotected in. I would like to uh, ask about the school system's response because one thing that I thought as a reader of the, uh, these these periodicals and the online uh, publications uh, that the school system had done right, but you're highly critical of it, is that they had contracted to have an independent investigation, which seemed to me from an outside point of view, an independent investigation is exactly what was needed, but you're critical of it. Why? Well, our concern is that uh, there has been a back and forth throughout this process about whether or not Mike Morris and Doreen Cunningham are part of that investigation. Assuming the that... The superintendent and his deputy superintendent yes, at the time. Who were both holding the most power in the district around these issues and who, based on the fact that the issues escalated to a point that they did, failed to protect queer and trans kids. So our concern was that if the district selected the person who was going to investigate the district, and our understanding is that uh, Mike Morris recommended this person, and Mike Morris was not telling the truth about what he'd been aware of and not addressing the issue over an extended period of time, we would have felt more comfortable had the um, investigation been conducted by somebody not selected by the person potentially implicated in it. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but I take it that the school committee ultimately approved the investigation. It had to approve the funds, so it wasn't Morris's unilateral decision, was it? Or was it? The it's, regional school committee, the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee. I mean, one thing that's become very clear in this process is that there is a relationship of, there was a relationship of mutual protection between some members of the regional school committee and the superintendent. And so we developed uh, an awareness that we could not trust decisions that were made through the school committee, through the regional school committee, about how to handle this issue, because they were undermining children's stories, because they were silencing the public, because they were unwilling to hold meetings to, to meet our concerns. I mean, several of the um, previous regional school committee members have talked um, at length about how they felt it was unfair that we advocated so strongly for children and families in this process. And the reality is, you know, we, we started by trying to show up at school committee meetings and make asks and ask them to, to follow through on things. We only got to the point of organizing a rally, of writing in the papers, of doing a car parade through neighborhoods, by the way, neighborhoods all over town, not just their neighborhoods, through the center of town, holding signs in the center of town. Those were things we did when they would not hear any of our other asks. That was Ali Wicks Lim uh, talking about, and by the way, the, the vote of no confidence was from the Amherst Bellum Education Association, the local teachers union, um, that uh, voted no confidence for the superintendent um, and the deputy superintendent. We, are, uh, we have heard from Maxine Oland. We're going to be right back and continue our conversation uh, on this important inquiry into the status and history recently of the Amherst schools. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we have been talking, we're going to continue talking with Maxine Oland, the parent of the Title IX complainant in the Amherst School situation with Allie Wicks Lim, but also we have with us MJ Schwartz during the break. I learned that you are a parent, MJ, and a step-parent of five, that you are non-binary by your own identity, and that you had terrible experiences in school growing up, and this uh, rang too familiar for you. In the couple minutes we have left, there is something that you wanted to point out, a factual inaccuracy that you wanted to make sure we know about. Um, yes, I wanted to clarify something that was brought up uh, in an interview that was done um, with Ben Harrington, who sa- stated that the uh, regional school committee had no power to put the superintendent on leave. Um, this is contradicted by uh, an acting member of the school committee, Irv Rhodes, uh, who states, for the record, legally the RSC can exercise its authority in the hiring and firing of the superintendent, that it is in our policies and is state law. Additionally, within that authority, we certainly could have put the superintendent on administrative leave. He might have fought such a move, but we certainly had the authority to do so. That our authority to take this action might be challenged on a legal basis does not mean that we have no authority to act. And the RSC is the Regional School Committee. Yes, that's correct. That's an important point to to uh, make. So um, now the school committee, uh, the few members that remain on the school committee, and the town council are beginning to mull over the questions that should be asked uh, during the interview of potential superintendents. That's all going to be happening next week, I believe, in a, in a, in a meeting of the school committee and in the commencement of a search. Uh, we only have a minute left. Um, I'd like to ask a question. Please. Do you have an idea of when the investigation report is going to be submitted and made public? Because it seems to me We've all been waiting for that, whatever your opinion about it. It was originally supposed to be August, so your guess is as good as mine at this point, but I do know that preliminary reports have been made available to the people who made the complaints. 
um, to to pivot to your point about those important. Well, hiring. let me just ask Mac. Let me just follow with Maxine. Have you received some information about that? I have received the preliminary report, but it was only the stuff that was referring to my particular complaint, which I said is quite limited. It does not deal with the bullying because he said that's indisputable. Um, and I do, will not receive uh, parts of it that are dealing with any administrators, et cetera, and the failures that they made to um, to follow up. In less than 20 seconds, Ali. The hiring committee has to be reflective of the community. There has to be queer or trans representation, black, brown representation um, on that hiring committee in order for the community to have, have trust in it. Um, and we really need to pivot this conversation back to the children and the teachers who are impacted and stop talking to the people who walked away from their jobs to protect them when they were asked to do so. Well, uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today and for explaining a little bit more. We're going to do our best to stay on top of this. Thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. Listeners, remember, walk the walk. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This is Talk the Talk. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday, Hangar Pub and Grill? Correct. They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Famous for their amazing wings and beer, the Hangar Pub and Grill has multiple locations throughout Western Mass. The Hangar Wings paired with an Amherst Brewing beer is perfect before a game. After work, lunch. Check them out. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Your basement's flooded. Rent a wet vac, a sump pump, floor dryer, and a dehumidifier. Whatever the job, chances are TJ's rents the tools and equipment to make it easier, safer, and cheaper. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the right tools and equipment at TJ's. We'll show you how to use them. You'll get the hang of it in no time. TJ's Rental, Route 202 in South Hadley. Give us a call and fill up your propane tank while you're here. WHMP Northampton.